This morning, as we get ready to look at our lesson, I'd like for us to read some words of David penned in Psalm 40, which are very apropos to the lesson, to where we're looking, uh, studying in 2 Samuel. These are very well known to us because a modern chorus has been made out of this passage, but I'd like to read the first three verses of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Uh, considering what we're looking at in the life of David right now, you can understand how when he gets works through this and comes to the place of repentance and, and renewal, that how a, a song like this might literally flow from his lips because he was in the place of destruction and he was in the miry clay and God lifted him out of that. Shall we pray together? Father, we give you praise that you have been faithful down through the millennia to your people. And Father, that you have dared to tell it like it has been in the human race ever since Adam and Eve in the garden and men and women ever since in their points of, of godlikeness and in their points of great failure. You have highlighted both and yet through it all we realize that but for the grace of God none of us would stand in your presence. Lord, I pray that your word will be burned into our hearts that will be made part of our very being so that our attitudes and our words and our actions flow forth from the Word of God imprinted and implanted in our minds and hearts. Father, I pray for the three ladies who are presenting this morning for Kathy and Rachel and Kelly. We're grateful for the first service now during second and third as they make their presentations. Just encourage them, strengthen them. Give them calmness and peace, Lord. As, as they make, uh, present what they're uh, going overseas to do. Lord, we trust that your hand will be upon every class and the presentation of your word this morning. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, I'll read beginning verse 14. Now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch in the city that he put Uriah at a place where he knew there were valiant men, meaning valiant Ammonites. And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. And he charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? By the way, that's Gideon, Jerubbabel, uh, Gideon is Abimelech, the son of Gideon, is what they're saying there. 
Did not a woman throw down an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. You may not remember, but if you go back to the book of Judges, in the ninth chapter, there's a story of when Gideon, ceased, when Gideon died, Gideon had 70 sons. But one son he had by a concubine, and he was jealous of the other 70, and so he decided that he wanted to take his father's place as judge. And so he murdered his 70 brothers. And when he had completed that, he tried to be judge over Israel for three years. And there was a rebellion against him. And at Thebes, where he went to try to put down the rebellion, the people of the city had fled into a tower. And uh, he went to besiege the tower and to try to burn the wall. And a woman who was on the roof of the tower threw the upper part of a millstone that's used to grind grain, dropped it down on his hat. And, you know, uh, I don't know how many feet tall the tower was, but if you drop a millstone that weighs quite a bit on somebody's head uh, from even 10 feet, let alone probably 40 or 50 feet, it says it crushed his skull and uh, he died. And so that's what uh, David or what Joab is referring to here as he's putting words in David's mouth. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, or so some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. So we have here, of course, the story in the first part of the chapter where David has seduced Bathsheba, and we studied all of that uh, on previous Sunday. And we noticed that last week, David tried to cover up his sin when it was discovered that uh, Bathsheba was pregnant by inducing Uriah to spend some time with his wife. And Uriah would not do it even when David got him drunk. He still refused uh, to go and spend time with his wife. And I pointed out to you last time that I really believe that the Lord was helping to keep Uriah from from yielding to David's entreaties, partly because David, God was not going to allow David to get away and cover up his sin, even though this was going to cost Uriah his life. So David sent a letter, as we read about in this particular passage, to Joab, the commander of the army. Now, <clears throat> this is the uh, scenario that we're looking at here. David, of course, is in Jerusalem. And we've already noted Jerusalem at that time is not the Jerusalem that you see today. I mean, it's the, still the same location. But it's, the, in those days, it was a very, very tiny little town, probably 12 acres in size uh, at maximum. Actually, it was directly on the southeast corner of the modern old city. If you go to Jerusalem, you go to the walled old city. Uh, it's directly on the southeast corner outside of the walls that you'll see there today. That's where David's city was. And being very, very small city was, and compact, even as we noted in the psalm last Sunday, it was easy for David to, to be, being on the high point of the city. The, the city was on a, a slope. The Ophel is a slope. I'll show you some pictures as soon as I get this, this PowerPoint thing uh, down here. <laughs> Les is helping me, and we'll, we'll get there. But uh, I'll show you some pictures of the Ophel, and you'll, you'll see the, the exact uh, location here. I... I pointed it out to you uh, once before in this 
uh, map isn't really the best, but it gives you the, the basic idea anyway. Here are the walls of the current old city. If you go to Jerusalem here, you'll find these are the walls that are standing. They're the Turkish walls of the 16th century. And here's the city of David here, the old Jebusite city of Jerusalem. It's actually outside of those walls. And, and David was probably up in the north part of the city, the high part, because this slopes, from here it slopes down this way and it slopes off to both sides. So it's, it's, it's like a ridge, promontory. And the city was, was built up on uh, this part. And, and so for David to be in the palace, which probably be the tallest building in the highest part of the city, he would be looking down on the whole city. So it was easy for him to look down into the courtyard of, of a neighboring uh, home, the home of Uriah. So th this is the situation of Jerusalem. And the war was being fought over here at Rabbah here, uh, which is roughly 50 miles away by foot or by horse, uh, riding across through the uh, Jordan Valley up there to Rabbah, which is today the current capital of the city of, of the country of Jordan. It's called Amman, and, and of course it comes from Ammonites, so the Ammonites who live there. <clears throat> this is often called Rabbah Ammon, and that's a city that was under siege uh, and where Uriah is killed, out on the walls outside of that particular city. The city of Rabbah probably was actually larger than the city of Jerusalem in terms of area and, and probably population at that particular time. So that's the, the geographical situation here. Uh, David has ordered or has written a message to send with Uriah himself. And I pointed out last time the horrible nature of that. You're sending a man's death warrant in his own hands unbeknownst to him to carry back to his uh, commander-in-chief uh, that... David wanted Uriah dead. He didn't explain to uh, Joab why. And uh, we looked at the end of class last time as to why did Joab unquestioningly questioningly go ahead and carry out uh, these instructions. Because he challenged David on many occasions. He said, why are we going to do this, David? You shouldn't be doing that, David. Uh, so it wasn't that Joab was afraid to challenge David. But I think it was because he felt it was to his benefit to allow Uriah to die because he probably saw in Uriah the greatest threat to his own position as commander-in-chief of the army of Israel. And so, in order to carry this out, Joab is going to have to do what military commanders usually are very unwilling to do, and that is to put men needlessly in danger of their lives, to put men out where they can be killed for no good purpose, nothing being accomplished uh, by it. But that's what Joab was going to have to do. Now, walled cities, if you look down through the pages of history, walled cities are usually captured by mining. That is, you dig under the wall, and either you come up inside and, and your troops come in, or you undermine a part of the wall so it collapses, so your army can rush in through the hole in the wall. Or you lay siege to the city and starve it into submission, which I noted last time was what happened to the city of Samaria when the Assyrians laid siege to it, only it held out for three years against the great Assyrian siege, or storming the city, which generally means you attack the city with overwhelming force from multiple sides at once. Uh, those of you who know the story of the Alamo, uh, the reason the Alamo with, withstood the Mexican assault for as long as it did was that the Mexican general didn't get the bright idea of storming all the walls at once, but he kept attacking one wall, which allowed the Texans inside to defend that one wall. Whereas he finally got bright and said, well, if I attack all the walls, there aren't enough Texans to defend all the walls. And so, you know, he finally took the Alamo. But 
you know, if you want to take a, take a city, you try to storm it. If you're going to do it by storm, you've got to have a lot of guys and you've got to hit it from all sides to overwhelm the defenders. This is not what's happening here. Joab sends a small force of guys to attack a small little part of the city. This you don't do because it's a waste of manpower. And, and we see exactly what happens here. The Ammonites, seeing this small force, probably several hundred Israelites, uh, uh, coming against them at this one place, they sally forth. <laughs> now, that's, I know that's the name of an old comic strip, but sally forth is an actual <laughs> English term. Before the comic strip. <laughs> that's right. Large cities and fortresses usually have not only a main gate where there's a drawbridge or double walls or double towers or whatever to guard it, but often there's a small gate in various places along the wall, very heavily fortified, but a small gate. And the idea of that small gate is to open it at night and send out some guys to go out and, in the secret of the night, butcher the surrounding uh, besieging army, or to do as they did here. A group of them would burst forth out of the city and, and attack this, this small group of Israelites. And that's what's described here. And, and these are valiant men. They send out good guys. You're going to be able to do this. And so they attack the Israelites. Now what we do discover here is that the messenger reports that we did drive them back through their gate. In other words, the Israelites did fight valiantly and they pushed the Ammonites back into the, inside their city. But he said, the guys on the wall, with the, the archers on the wall, they did us in. The archers on the wall just rained down arrows, a lethal fire uh, upon the attacking Israelites, and that's what destroyed Uriah. Joab refused to send reinforcements. Uh, he didn't send anybody to help, which was part of the backing off and allowing Uriah to die. But it wasn't like sometimes we get the picture that, that they went up there to fight, and all of a sudden everybody said, winked at each other, and everybody just quickly disappeared and left Uriah standing there all by himself. It wasn't like that because, as you'll see, as you read in the passage, many other Israelites died in the same fight. In other words, it was just too small of a group to deal with the overwhelming force of the enemy, and therefore they were destroyed. So what you'll notice here, as David tries to cover his sin, you have an ever-widening circle of collateral damage. And it's expressed here in verse 17, where it says, And the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also fell. And so what we have here is several other soldiers besides Uriah were killed in this, in this attack that had no purpose, no purpose other than to kill Uriah. That's its only purpose. And so David's desire to destroy Uriah has now resulted in the death of several other Israelites, probably a couple of dozen or so more. Israelites would die in this cover-up. It makes the cover-up more convincing, right? If it isn't just Uriah who dies, but a bunch of other guys die too, he dies in the midst of others. And it looks like a perfectly legitimate thing, nothing to come back upon David. So what we find is the cost of unrepented sin is horrendous. It literally destroys lives. David now has a great deal of innocent blood on his hands. Not just the blood of Uriah, but the blood of many other Israelite soldiers. Because Joab knew the attack could look like a big blunder on his part, he gave the message, the instruction, the messenger the instructions that read in verses 19 through 21. He said, 
when, when you tell the this, and if he starts to say, get upset and say, but, but remember, don't you remember a bit and what he did? How come you got so close to the walls? And, you know, he's, he's putting words in David's mouth as David would say this. He knew David well enough. And, and so he coached the messenger to say, but Uriah the Hittite is dead. Well, whereas the all campaign had been going very well against Rabbah, the Ammonites had been driven back. Now they're all walled into their city. They've got nothing left but their capital, and they're defending it against a besieging army. I, I don't think the messenger particularly relished the idea of running over to David to report the Uriah incident. I don't think he wanted to do that. I think the messenger knew David well enough to know that David believed in good strategy, and he was used to very successful campaigns. And he wasn't used to, uh, to losses such that he was afraid that David might become irate, irate at him when he is only the messenger. But when David responds in calm and comforting words and simply says, do not let this thing be evil in your sight, for the sword devours one as well as another. I think the messenger about favor. David, is this the same David I've known from the past? <laughs> You know, he's, he's not even upset. He, he heard he captured Rabbah. As if nothing had happened. As if no plot had unfolded here. As if nothing tragic had happened. As if a man of great renown had not died. Well, let's go on with the last two verses of the chapter. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. David sent Bathsheba the word that her husband had died in battle. I don't think he let on to her at all that his death was not accidental or was not just an unfortunate battle, uh, battle death. I don't think he told her that I arranged for his death. What we're told is that she mourned for her husband. I believe she mourned the minimum customary amount of time. In the 50th chapter of Genesis, we read these words. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. That is the traditional minimum mourning period. One week. If you're a great person, as it was in the case of Moses, Moses was mourned a full month by the people of Israel. But in the case of Uriah, it was obligatory for Bathsheba to mourn a week. And so she mourned a week, and then David immediately married her. Why? Well, he wanted to make it at least feasible that she was pregnant after they were married. That's what he wanted to appear like. Now, again, we don't know the time frame here. We know the time frame is probably minimally six weeks, maybe longer. Now, you and I well know that it's possible for a child to be born and survive in less than nine months of gestation. 
And so that would have been known to Israel amongst the people in general. So David was hoping to kind of at least get it possible for people to believe that Bathsheba became pregnant after she was married to David. Now, David had married Abigail right after she finished mourning for her husband Nabal, remember? And so David was hoping everybody would see this similarly, that why does David marry Bathsheba only a week after she fought, discovers that her husband is dead? Why? Why, why does he do this? And many, he's hoping, of course, that many will remember, well, well, David did that in the case of Abigail, so he's doing that to comfort her. Yeah, right. Okay. So at least that was the hope. You see, David is doing a lot of hoping here. A lot of hoping. Things were not turning out the way David had hoped they would turn out. He hoped that it would all blow over with minimal damage to his reputation. He wanted it to be behind him to be gone, to be forgotten or unknown. This was David's hope. But the chapter ends with the ominous words, but the thing David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. When you read those words, you know the story is not over, and you know David is not home free. Evil such as David has participated in here and perpetrated brings inevitable consequences. They cannot be avoided. They're built in. And the scripture clearly proclaims this in many places. Let me just read a couple from Proverbs chapter 6. In Proverbs 6 at verse 27 we read, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. And then in the 15th chapter of Proverbs, at verse 9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Stern discipline is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. David is in for stern discipline. David was by his, not only by his act of adultery and by his act of murder, but his effort to cover it up, to not confess it, to shove it under the rug as it were, David was destroying himself and he was, oh, God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us. We are, you and I, are faced with the incomprehensible love of God. He is not going to allow us to perpetuate self-destructive acts. He's not going to allow it to continue without bringing correction. Correction for our good. God never acts in the life of His people purely for the defense of His name. He acts for the good of his people. God's commands are for our good. You've all heard the phrase, haven't you? People say, oh, God is a cosmic killjoy. You know, everything I want to do, God says, thou shalt not do. But all of God's commands are for our good because he knows how we are made. 
and how the only way we're really going to have true peace, true contentment, true joy, true happiness, both now and forever, is to do His commands. Anything else is destructive and brings tremendous pain and sorrow to ourselves as well as to others. So God must discipline God, uh, David. God will discipline David because it's in His Word that He would do such. And so as we read ahead and, and go further in, in the book of 2 Samuel, and we see what happens uh, in, in David's life, we have to remind ourselves that the humiliating and painful things that come upon David were not signs of God's rejection of David, but of his love of David because he's chastising him. He's chastising him because he loves him. Again, in uh, Proverbs, this time in the third proverb, we read these words at verse 11. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So his reproof is proof of his love for us. And the fact that these things happen to David are powerful proof of God's love for David. The author of the, the writer of the Hebrews uh, speaks similarly. If you turn to the 12th chapter of Hebrews at verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are, an, an, you are illegitimate children and not sons. If there is no discipline, the person is not God's child. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we see this born out to be reality in the life of David. We're going to read of the pain David went through, the sorrow David went through. And yet as you read the 51st Psalm and others, you see the peaceful fruit of righteousness that is born forth out of that discipline that God brought upon David. Even though David had rebelled against the Lord, I mean, what David did was rebellion. And his horrendous sin caused people to blaspheme the name of God. And Nathan the prophet points that out as we'll see when we look at the 12th chapter. Yet, in spite of all that, the Lord knew that when David was confronted with his sin, he would repent. See, that is... That, that, that just helps us to understand the significance of God's omniscience. God knows all things. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your acts before you do them. He knew what David would do. Because the very, at the very foundation of his being, in the very heart 
down at the core of David, he truly believed and loved God. It wouldn't look like it as you looked at his life. Murdering people, uh, committing adultery, trying to cover it up, doesn't look like love for God. But in the depth of his being, he truly feared God. And the Lord knew that once David came to his spiritual senses, he would be utterly crushed by the enormity of his sin. And we'll emphasize that because when you get, when you, when you, you all have read probably many times the 51st Psalm, when you read that Psalm, you get a real sense of the depth of David's pain for the sin that he had committed. Let's look at the first few verses of the 12th chapter. Then the Lord... <laughs> yeah. Then the Lord. Hmm. Yeah, you notice how the uh, previous chapter ends. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord. Oh, you know the other shoe's about to drop. Sent De Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich men, man had great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. This chapter contains one of the most powerful messages in all Scripture concerning God's love, God's mercy, and God's willingness to discipline, to demonstrate that love and that mercy. The final words of chapter 11 hung like a pall over Jerusalem, and the thing which David did was evil in the sight of God. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you've literally sensed the presence of evil, but that certainly was probably Nathan's feeling and maybe others who may have been in attune with the Lord at this particular time. The spiritual light had gone out in Jerusalem. And this condition probably lasted for over a year. From the very moment that David lusted for Bathsheba and followed that lust with the action of adultery to the moment when David finally acknowledged his sin after the child of that adultery was born. And so we're looking at I would guess a minimum of probably about a year. What a horrible time that must have been for David. Just think about it. How must David have felt? A man who had walked with God, who had written psalms, who had, who had been with sheep out in the wilderness and killed a lion and a bear with his own hands by the power of God. Sweet singer of Israel, he is often called. How did this man feel physically, spiritually, emotionally, as he was in the midst of what he knew was vileness and sin and was trying to ignore it and cover it up. And what about the people around David who knew this is not the David we've known? What's wrong with David? They may not have known all the details, but they knew something was wrong. David was not the godly man that they knew. 
The classic commentator, Matthew Henry, gives us some good insight here. He says, what shall we think of David's state all this while? We may well suppose that his comforts and the exercise of his graces were suspended and his communion with God interrupted. During all that time, it is certain he penned no psalms. Can you imagine David's penning a psalm in the midst of this? That his harp was out of tune and that his soul was like a tree in winter, having life only in the root. Although David undoubtedly went through the necessary religious forms and functions, you know, he had to go to the tent where the ark was and do, you know, quote, worship, and he had to, to be the leader of Israel in all of this. But it was all perfunctory to him. He was trying to hide the spiritual coldness that had overwhelmed his being by acting religious. Don't we see that a lot? The world is full of people who act religious. Uh, Christians around the world, I mean, the, the Christianity is supposed to in, involve 1.6 or 1.8, depending on what, you know, person you, you, you read, a billion people. But how many of those people are just perfunctory in their faith? Uh, maybe they go to a service, or, or, or maybe they at least use the name God or, or something. That's what David was doing, because his heart was hard. He was hardened against the inner voice of the Spirit. He was, you can just imagine, he was spending no time in prayer to God. He was spending no time contemplating the Almighty. He was spending no time running, reading the Word of God, because all of that would bring to him the, 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 the reality of his sin, and he was hiding from it. His pride was not going to let him to admit to the gravity of his crime. As we would say today, he was living in total denial. People like that word a lot today. He's living in denial. Well, he was living in denial. He was trying to rationalize all that he had done. But what we discover today is this same horrific condition has infected the church, even the evangelical church of America. We discover that within the ranks of the evangelicals, there is fornication. There are couples living together without the benefit of marriage and saying it's okay because we love each other. Committing adultery, switching wives and husbands and running off with the opposite person. Divorce, pornography, provocative clothing. I mean, it's rampant today. Oh, well, we can't find anything that, that rises high enough or, or comes low enough, so there's this gap of six inches, you know, from the belly button on down. You know, uh, yeah, right. Can't find it. Homosexuality and all these kinds of things are practiced and rationalized by many who identify themselves as born-again Christians. How can this be? I think primarily it comes from shallowness of faith, from lack of inner conviction. All the time I read and hear of people who, who want to change or interpret what the Bible says in such a way that they are allowed to do what they're doing, rather than looking at what the Bible does say and saying, oh, I'm not doing it right, I better change. They want to change the Bible. They want to change the Word of God because they insist they're going to live their way and still be called people of faith. Well, Jesus, has a, uh, Jesus gave a parable that we all know very well. 
And I think I'll read the parable. We're running out of time here, but I'll read the parable and then next week uh, talk about it uh, within the framework of this. In the 13th chapter of Matthew, this, this, the first part of this chapter, much of the chapter is given over to the parable of the sower. And you all know it very well. But let me read uh, Jesus' explanation of the parable beginning at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no firm root in himself, but only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one in whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I think that this parable can be used to understand both David's situation and the rampant problems we're having within the evangelical church in America today. Because as you will see next week, there is hardness of heart, there is thorn chokedness, there, there is all of these things and there is fruitfulness. All, all of it is, is within the church and, and of course what really makes it hard for trying to explain all this, we can say, well, yeah, the sin's there because people aren't really Christians, but then you've got the David problem because David was the good ground. <laughs> so how, how does that play into this whole thing? Well, we'll look at that next week.